Welcome. Today is the 1st of May, 2009. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and very excited to welcome with us today our guest speaker, calling all the way from England, Dr. Jane, Jim, Jim Dykins uh, from Pfizer, is joining us today. And the reason that I asked Dr. Dykins to join us is because he's the author of the book published in 2008, Drug-Induced Mitochondrial Dysfunction. I felt that his knowledge and expertise would really be of great interest to our community of patients and caregivers and clinicians who have an interest in mitochondrial diseases and some questions about sometimes if drugs are safe and what happens in the process of um, developing mitochondrial disease and dysfunction as well. Dr. Dykins has uh, an impressive background and including um, involvement with MitoCore, which is a company that focused on mitochondrial etiology of degenerative diseases. But currently, uh, he's joined Pfizer and focuses on drug-induced mitochondrial dysfunction and cell toxicity with the drug safety research and development in the UK. And Dr. Dykins, we're just so grateful to have you joining us today to talk to this patient population about this. So um, I'll, I'll let you do a better job introducing yourself, and then we'll just get right on to our topic. Well, Christy, thanks for the invitation. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to have a chance to, to, to chat. Um, I should, before I start, say that the, my opinions that I'm expressing today are my opinions. I'm not speaking for Pfizer. I'm speaking for Jim Dykins. Um, but everything I'm, I'm uh, telling you has been published in the literature, and Pfizer is well aware of it and, and is quite supportive. Well, one of the issues that's been bugging the pharmaceutical industry and, and the clinicians for years is this notion that drugs can be idiosyncratically toxic. And by that I mean that it, it's generally not a toxicity that's seen across um, most patients, but every once in a while an individual simply develops some sort of organ toxicity. There's been a lot of effort uh, and thought put into trying to figure out why that's the case. And for the last couple of decades, the industry has focused on the way that individuals metabolize drugs. And by that, I mean that a person takes a drug, and individual A will convert it to a different kind of molecule as part of its metabolism, whereas individual B might convert it more predominantly to a different kind of, of molecule. And the differences in that pattern have been uh, ascribed to be causing idiosyncratic responses. When I came into the field, actually not that long ago, uh, drug safety is a relatively recent environment for me, I started looking across the board and asking the question, well, could there be other reasons other than metabolism of the drug for this idiosyncratic response, something that's causing this idiosyncratic toxicity? And I started working on mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, in this case, off-target mitochondrial dysfunction. Most of the drugs that I'll be talking about aren't designed to target mitochondria just the opposite. They've been designed to target other receptors or other proteins in the cell. But they have this off-target mitochondrial effects that, when taken in toto, I think do a pretty good job of explaining uh, why these drugs do have organ toxicity. So, for example, a training library that I recently analyzed was 92 compounds that Pfizer was developing but the development was stopped because when tested in animals, typically rats, there was organ toxicity found. So I went and looked at the mitochondrial effects of these 92 drugs 
and found that about 70% of them directly inhibit respiration, mitochondrial respiration. So by doing this kind of analysis earlier and earlier in drug development, we can take the compounds that have potential mitochondrial liabilities out of development earlier and simply avoid any uh, clinical problems. So the slides that I sent Christy are essentially a distillation, and we're not going to have time to go through them all, but, but a distillation of the kinds of information I try and tell professional pharmacologists. These are my peers in industry as well as in academia to try and bring home the point that consideration of mitochondrial toxicity is an important aspect of drug development and something that we need to do much more often and more frequently. So the kinds of points I make are shown in the overview slide. I try and make the point that mitochondrial failure um, can happen in all kinds of ways. It's a complicated organelle, so I call it a target-rich environment. So mitochondria can fail in all kinds of different ways. Plus, because of the mitochondrial membrane potential, many drugs can be accumulated within mitochondria so that the dose that we're giving patients, and you look in the serum, the blood, to see what the, what the exposure is, in fact, may be grossly underestimating the amount of drug that's actually in the mitochondria. So as a result, the classical, what's called pharmacokinetics approaches done in, in pharmaceutical development don't hold for mitochondria. So we're really forging new ground here in terms of consideration of drug development. I'll then uh, talk, if I can, about some of the drugs that have uh, no mitochondrial liabilities. And interestingly, there are whole classes of molecules of drugs that have liabilities, but the potency varies across the class. So to me, that in, in, uh, provides some optimism that we can retain the potency of the beneficial side of the drug while avoiding any mitochondrial liabilities. Now, one point is that this is a fairly recent area of science. The book that Christy alluded to is the first book in this area. And, and why is it, how is it that pharmaceutical industry has missed the notion that mitochondrial dysfunction can be induced by drugs? And I contend it's simply an accident of history, an accident of circumstance. And I'll tell you a little bit about that and, and how I think it happened and, and what we're doing to rectify it now. And I'll do that by showing you some uh, assays that have been developed at Pfizer that we've published and shared with the industry in total. And I know for a fact now, I just came back from a meeting uh, in France, where uh, a number of pharmaceutical companies are now doing very similar kinds of research. So the word is spreading very quickly across the industry, and I think that uh, the risk-benefit ratio to all of us is going to get uh, a lot better pretty quickly. So in the next slide, I show some of the 44 drugs that have been withdrawn from the market uh, since 1960. This is far too late to find out that a drug has idiosyncratic toxicity, or in this case, mitochondrial toxicity. We need to find this out early, early in development. So I'll use a couple of, of examples. Uh, Fenformin and Buform were withdrawn in 1978 for lactic acidosis. Now, those of you who have mitochondrial diseases know that lactic acidosis is, is a hallmark of mitochondrial impairment. It, it can't be definitively uh, used as uh, a sign of mitochondrial failure because lactic acidosis can uh, occur following exercise, for example. 
Another example I use is troglitazone. This is uh, withdrawn by Pfizer, so it's a particularly poignant case for us uh, in 2000 for hepatotoxicity. And cerebrostatin was withdrawn in 2001 for rhabdomyolysis. So I use these three examples as case studies when I get to the, uh, the assays. In the next slide, I list some of the uh, uh, drugs that have received black box warnings from the FDA. These are, this is a warning that the FDA issues when there's a toxicity associated with the drug at a higher than expected rate. FDA has issued some 384 of these so far. And when we look at those 384 drugs with black box warnings, we find a very high percentage of them have mitochondrial liabilities that were previously not known. I also noted in the uh, lower left that uh, elevated serum liver enzymes um, that are often associated with nascent hepatotoxicity uh, reflect the fact that liver cells are dying. Now, liver is such an organ, uh, a target organ for oral drugs because when you swallow the pill, it goes into your GI system and it goes into your intestine and blood from the intestine goes directly to the liver through, uh, through a, a circulatory uh, system. So as a result, the liver is exposed to much higher concentrations of drugs than other, other tissues in the body. So as a result, many drugs are hepatotoxic before they're toxic to other tissues. The next slide shows uh, an image of a mitochondria that I'll show in, in larger scale in the next one. This is an image captured using a, a new technology of electron microscopy. But I make the point to my audience that, that mitochondria are very important to cell viability. They generate almost all the energy, more than 90% of the energy uh, in most aerobically poised cells. They generate almost all the free radicals in those cells. And when mitochondria die, the cell viability is imperiled. If, my, if mitochondrial death is widespread, then that cell will die and the organ will be having a, a toxic response. The next image is a blown-up image of the previous one uh, showing the architecture of the organelle. And you can see the details where I've drawn the arrows. It's interesting to note, when you look on those yellow tubes, those are the Christie, the invagination that increase the surface area, the little bumps on the Christie are actually the respiratory complexes of the electron transport system. I like to show this because we talk about mitochondrial impairment. And most pharmacologists consider that that means that the proteins of electron transport are being targeted by the drug. But I have to make the point with this slide that it's not just the proteins, but it's also the membrane integrity in the organelle that also contributes to mitochondrial function. If that membrane gets discombobulated, and that's a very technical term, by the way, discombobulation. <laughs> if the membrane gets discombobulated, mitochondrial function can also fail. So that unlike classical pharmacode uh, targets, which are mostly proteins, the membrane structure in mitochondria is also important. In the next slide, I show a more typical presentation of mitochondria in a cell. And you can see the thread-like structure that's often characteristic of the organelle in the left-hand side of this image. That the name mitochondria comes from the thread-like structure. The next slide on ATP turnover, I, I ask the rhetorical question, well, how important is mitochondrial function to our, our health? 
And these are just some numbers. This is back, a back-of-the-envelope calculation using numbers out of just classical textbooks. And I show that women and men differ in the amount of energy that they generate uh, per day. But on average, uh, women, this is for resting metabolism now, just sitting in the chair, as many of you are uh, in the audience, I generate about 6,000 kilojoules per day. The, the, the units don't matter, but you can see the magnitude of this. I then ask the question, well, how much ATP would it take to generate that much energy? So I divide out by how efficiently ATP generates energy, and I calculate through a simple uh, division that females turn over a certain number of amount of ATP every day and males a little bit more. I then divide out by how much ATP weighs and reach the final calculation that women turn over about 148 pounds of ATP a day and men almost 200 pounds of ATP a day. So we, under resting metabolism, essentially turn over our body weight in ATP every day. That's remarkable, Dr. Dykin. Can I ask a quick question just to go back sure. and clarify? Uh, on the drugs that receive black box warning, some of those, you know, there's a lot of drugs there, and some of those are very common, for example, ibuprofen. Are, does that imply that there's a concern for those drugs in people, or is that really something that in, in the test tube model has shown uh, an impact? No, the FDA, the FDA issues black box warnings based only on clinical data. So when, when symptoms, uh, uh, peripheral neuropathy or hepatotoxicity or, or some other issue start showing up in patients, then the FDA will review the, the clinical evidence. So those are all from clinical observations. So does that then, can we extrapolate that and say that that means that there's a concern for people, especially people who have a known mitochondrial dysfunction, to take those drugs, or what do we what do we do with that information? Well, typically that information gets to the clinicians, and they, in prescribing the drug, do a risk-benefit ratio, bearing in mind the fact that there's a potential for this organ toxicity, and looking at the patient and asking themselves, will this patient have a higher or lower propensity for this kind of reaction? Now, for, for you folks out there who have mitochondrial diseases, this idiosyncratic drug toxicity is a threshold process, and I'll tell you more about that when I get to those slides. But in many cases, your threshold will be lower than my threshold because you have an impaired mitochondrial function, and my threshold will be lower than the threshold of a trained athlete who has an abundant mitochondrial capacity. So the... the the black box warning is just that. It's a warning. It's a yellow light to, to raise uh, uh, some, some questions and some caution to, to inform that risk-to-benefit ratio. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Now, the next slide I use, I, I come back to this notion that the mitochondrion is a complex organelle and it can fail in all kinds of ways. Now, the antivirals and antibiotics that are being used to fight infection target sort of long-term mitochondrial replication. Um, the antivirals that are used in HIV therapies, for example, that do target mitochondrial replication, these show up as lipodystrophies and lipoatrophies and metabolic syndromes that are secondary to the antiviral effect. The, the issue here is that the drugs that are targeting the viral replication or uh, viral or uh, bacterial protein expression, 
These aren't really off-target effects because the mitochondria evolve from bacteria, and by targeting the bacterial process of replication, you're secondarily targeting the mitochondrial process. So it's not really off-target. It's an unfortunate consequence, but it's not really off-target. And as a result, many antibiotics are prescribed for only a brief time period, long enough so that the bacterial infection can be, can be fought and, and gotten rid of, but not so long that mitochondrial impairment is severely impaired. Excuse me, mitochondrial function is severely impaired. So most pharmacologists uh, understand that the, the, and physicians understand that antivirals and antibiotics can have secondary mitochondrial effects. The effects that I've been talking about across the industry now for the last couple of years are much more acute, and they're direct effects. So the drug actually goes into the mitochondria and discombobulates its function. So I, I typically only talk about inhibition of electron transport and on couplers where the electro the chemical potential that's generated by electro, electron transport no longer can make ATP. And then I simply throw my hands up and say, and all these other things we know are occurring and we're just starting to understand them. The next slide with the orange background shows a cartoon of the electron transport system. And I don't expect you to read the details here because they're in very small type. In a sense, that doesn't really matter. The point I make with this slide is that we've known for a long time that all kinds of chemicals inhibit electron transport. Cyanide, carbon monoxide, rotenone, antimycin, oligomycin, the list is, is quite extensive. So then I, again, rhetorically ask the, uh, challenge the pharmacologist, well, knowing this, you shouldn't be surprised that pharmaceuticals that we, that we develop would also have the potential to induce mitochondrial impairment. And then I go to the next slide and make the point that when we look across drugs with organ toxicity, many of them do have mitochondrial liabilities. Not all, but many of them do. So when we did a random screen as part of another uh, process here at Pfizer, we found that about a third of the molecules in the library that we, that we looked at have mitochondrial liabilities. And as I mentioned earlier, if we just look at organ toxicity, drugs with known organ toxicity, that percentage more than doubles. Uh, then, I'm, I'm going to interrupt one second, Dr. Dykins, and just clarify for folks who may be new mito patients that when Dr. Dykins is talking about the electron transport system or an electron transport chain, that's the five-part process that needs to take place in order to take roughly uh, the glucose from food and turn it into ATP at the end. So when you hear someone say, oh, I have complex one and three, or I have complex five, um, those complexes, one, two, three, four, and five, are different stop points for the process to ultimately have that glucose become ATP. And a defect in any one of those areas then can ultimately mean that the cell is not, the mitochondria is not producing enough energy for the cell. And Dr. Dykins, feel free to clarify for me because I'd love your input. But what I see from that slide then is that drug toxicity can take place at any one of those complexes. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole mitochondria is being attacked by a drug, but that even we know that patients can have profound symptoms from a defect in what seems to be a very small part of this process. 
one complex one has a deficiency and then the patient has lifelong symptoms. So in that same way, I, I see from your slide that it looks like drugs can also have that effect specifically to those different complexes. Would you add anything to that, Dr. Dykins? No, I think, I think that's fine. I think you're quite right. And as you'll see in a couple of minutes, we have now found drugs that, that have effects on all the respiratory complexes, which is quite surprising. So I then make, I then make to the point, the point to the pharmacologist that this is an important consideration, that the effects of a drug on the mitochondrial population may be small, and it may be therefore subclinical, but it will be happening. And, and at some point, uh, there's, there's a metabolic cost to this. So, for example, if you know you're impairing mitochondrial function and the cell responds by constructing more mitochondria, that's an expensive thing to do. It takes a lot of uh, uh, protein, a lot of ATP to make a mitochondria. So there is a cost to the cell to, to maintain mitochondrial potential. And then I make the point that the severity of the adverse reaction is, is what's idiosyncratic. Not the adverse reaction, but, but its idiosyncratic nature, but its severity uh, is what differs amongst us uh, as individuals. And this is a function of organ history as well as genetics, and that includes mitochondrial DNA. Um, we're just starting to learn about this now. Uh, and the one point I make is that we know that the, 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 most, the most important risk factors for this idiosyncratic responses are gender and age and organ history. That is, previous uh, organ exposure uh, to drugs, to alcohol, that sort of thing. So what we do in the pharmaceutical industry is we look for this kind of toxicity in drug-naive, perfectly healthy, young male animals. Just the wrong place to be looking for. So I've cajoled my colleagues here at Pfizer to start doing these studies in aged uh, female animals that have been uh, drinking martinis for the last two years. <laughs> well, the next slide shows that the evidence for drug-induced mitochondrial dysfunction uh, is rapidly accumulating. It isn't just Jim Dykins who's saying this, but labs all across the world uh, have been saying it. In fact, some of this work, the very initial work, was done by a colleague of mine here at Pfizer who just retired before I joined, named uh, David Amaker. So there are people who are out there who have been... Uh, We've been working on this for quite some time, and I, I provide a, a, a reference to a recent review. So at Pfizer, we now know that mitochondrial dysfunction is an important aspect of drug development. How do we study it? Well, we study it by using some new technologies, and in the next slide is uh, one of the first screens that we developed. And this uses a probe, um, a, a fluorescent probe that was made by a company named Luxell. And this shows a 96 well, this is a plastic map, a map of a, of a, of a 96 well uh, assay where we monitor the oxygen consumption of isolated rat liver mitochondria. The left side of the plate is replicated in the right side of the plate so that the compound in well A1 is the same as the compound in well A7. And the controls, that is the treatments without any drug, are located on the bottom row, and I've highlighted them in the black box. So you can see that these low rates of mitochondrial respiration under basal conditions, under resting conditions, are not normal in well A1 and A7. So this drug in well A1 and 7 is uncoupling the electron transport system 
from the production of ATP. And you can look across the plate and you can see, for example, in A3 and A9, that's also an uncoupler. If you then look at the next slide, in this condition, it's the same assay, same isolated rat liver, but in the controls now in the bottom, we add ADP. Under these conditions, mitochondrial respiration accelerates immediately to the maximum rate. So you can, and you can see that the rate of respiration is quite a bit higher in the untreated controls. But now if you look at well A1 and 7, you can see that the drug is inhibiting respiration. And likewise, you can see the two uh, wells next to the controls, actually in H1, H3, and H4, are all inhibiting respiration. So what this kind of assay does is it allows us to look at mitochondrial respiration at 40 compounds at a time, which is about 40 times faster than we could before. So this has allowed us to screen large libraries of molecules to find those molecules that have mitochondrial liabilities. In the next slide, I show just such data from a group of family uh, compounds called the glitazones. The first one of these was troglitazone, and they were marketed as insulin sensitizers um, to be used for type 2 diabetes. And in many cases, they work just fine, but they also have idiosyncratic organ toxicity. And if we look at the various compounds in this group, you can see in the top panel, for example, there's three compounds that shoot up immediately and then go flatline. That's saglitazone, troglitazone, and darglitazone. And if you look at the very bottom line, that's the control respiration. So the controls have low respiration, but all of the drugs in this class uncouple respiration. And they, but they do it differently. The first, the darglitazone, troglitazone, and saglitazone uh, are very potent whereas the rosy glitazone and pea glitazone that are shown in the black box are much less potent. The X's in the names indicate that those molecules were either dropped uh, before they reached the clinic or withdrawn from the clinic. So what I say is that the clinical disposition of these drugs is in accord with their mitochondrial toxicity. If you look at the bottom panel, and this is the maximum respiration, the top line is control, and you can see that all the, the drugs, the glitazones in this class, inhibit respiration. Theoglitazone and rosiglitazone, the two that are still on the market, do so less potently than the others, and that's why they're still on the market. They have received a black box warning for congestive heart failure, which has a mitochondrial component. But when I looked in the literature, I also found that they have just as many adverse event reports for liver toxicity as they do for cardiotoxicity. The next slide shows a similar sort of data set with statins. And you can see that although they most, most of them have some sort of mitochondrial liability, um, they vary in their potency. So that, to me, encourages me to think that we can get around this mitochondrial liability, we can retain potency, and make better drugs in the future. The next screen is entitled uh, by Guanides, Analyzed by a Seahorse Technology. This is a startup company in Massachusetts, um, and I'll tell you about the technology in just a minute. But what we did in this assay is we looked at fenformin, buformin, and metformin, these are the three drugs in this class. And I've indicated the potency and how well they induce uh, lactic acidosis in rats now. 
on the right-hand side, Fenform, it only takes a dose of 5 micromolar Fenformin to induce lactic acidosis. It takes about 20 times more than that, 120 um, micromoles of buformin, and about 6 or 700, uh, or 6 or 7 times more than that of metformin. So Fenformin is the most potent mitochondrial inhibitor is the prediction. Buformin is intermediate, and metformin is the least potent. What, what does yes. that mean for the person who's taking metformin? Because I, I think um, most of our listeners are our patients and have concerns about drugs specifically that they've heard, drugs like metformin or drugs they should avoid. When you do this kind of assay, boil it down for us. What does that mean for the person whose doctor recommends that they take this drug? There's an irony here in that the therapeutic goal of these drugs is to lower blood glucose. If you, if you provide these drugs, these drugs have that therapeutic effect. They certainly do lower glucose, but they do, do so for a paradoxical reason. I'll tell you that in just a second. I'll tell you now. They do inhibit mitochondria, and in response, the cell reverts to a different metabolic pathway called glycolysis. So although they reduce, they lower blood glucose, they do that by accelerating glycolysis, which produces lactic acidosis. So in terms of patients taking the drugs, again, it comes back to a risk-benefit ratio. If the diabetes is difficult, and it's difficult to control, and blood sugar is high, then it makes sense to take these drugs. But both the physician and the patient need to remain vigilant about the potential for lactic acidosis as a secondary consequence of the drug. Does that answer your question, Christy? It does. Thank you. And I think, um, you know, just because we are a non-scientific audience, anything that you can do to translate that to what that means for folks who are out in the real world is extraordinarily helpful. So thank you for that. Okay. If we look at the next slide, the seahorse technology monitors oxygen consumption, which we've already looked at, but it also looks at the pH, the acidity of the media. So we can monitor, well, in this first slide, we should add some uh, fenformin, buformin, metformin, and DMSO is simply a control, the drug carrier. We see that as soon as we add the drug, the oxygen consumption rate for fenformin goes through the, through the floor. So the drug is clearly inhibiting uh, respiration. Buformin shown in teal or turquoise is not nearly as potent uh, as metformin, excuse me, as, as femformin, but it does have a, an inhibition, and metformin uh, is inhibiting uh, below control. So they're all slowing uh, respiration, that is ATP production. In the next slide, we show that in response to that, the cells accelerate the glycolytic pathway. This is sugar being broken apart to yield ATP. Fenformin causes an immediate increase in lactate production. Buformin uh, is intermediate in its response, and metformin in this case is indistinguishable from controls. So in response to the loss of mitochondrial ATP production, the cells accelerate this glycolytic pathway, which is not nearly as efficient as oxidative as, as mitochondrial respiration. So from glycolysis, you get two molecules of ATP. If you then take the products of glycolysis and use the mitochondria effectively, you get 36 molecules of ATP. 
So the cell is accelerating glycolysis, which is inefficient. You get ATP out of it, but because it's inefficient, you use a lot more glucose, and that's what causes blood, the blood sugar to go down. So you're treating diabetes, lowering blood sugar, which is a good thing, by a mechanism that's causing metabolic stress, which is a bad thing. So we come back to that risk-benefit ratio that you have to talk with your physician about and make some decisions about. Is the blood sugar worse than the mitochondrial effects or not? And those are the kinds of choices that we as patients are facing. The next screen that we've developed was, has been done with a, a company in Eugene, Oregon called Mitosciences. And in this case, once we find that there's a mitochondrial liability, we want to find out where it's occurring. We first, we mentioned the respiratory complexes before. And what Mitoplastis has developed is a system whereby we can capture, using antibodies, the functioning intact respiratory complexes. And we can capture them in a test tube. So now we can ask the question, where is the drug having an effect in the electron transport system? So when we look at, for example, troglitazone, I see that my graph didn't get through the air ether email very well. But the point here is that when we look at troglitazone, it doesn't inhibit complex one or complex two and three, but it does inhibit complex four as well as complex five, which is the ATP synthase uh, part. So we use this kind of information to develop fingerprints as well as rank order of potency for drugs that we're developing. The next slide shows that another one of the glitazones in this class also inhibits complex four and complex five, but this one, dark glitazone, also inhibits complex two and three, so it's a different pattern of inhibition. Rosiglitazone, one of the two that's still on the market, inhibits complex one, but only modestly. Well, just to clarify for the audience, the glitazones are drugs for diabetes. That's correct. The, the uh, insulin sensitizers. And then simvastatin, the uh, lipid-lowering drug, inhibits all the respiratory complexes. So I now have two computational chemists looking at the structure of these drugs and the structure of the various complexes, and they're trying to figure out where the drugs are interacting with these proteins, and can they identify portions of the molecules, the chemical structure of the molecules, that we can then tell our chemists, don't use this motif because it has mitochondrial liabilities. So we're working backwards from looking at drugs with known toxicity and trying to use in silico, that is computer modeling of, of chemistry structures, to try and develop safer drugs uh, even earlier and earlier in the process. Well, the last screen that I'll have time to tell you about is this one that's circumventing the Crabtree effect. The reason that mitochondrial dysfunction was missed for the last 80 years in pharmacology is because of a very simple physiological process that was identified, in fact, 80 years ago, independently by two scientists, one named Crabtree and one named Warburg. And these are really just variations on a theme. And the theme is that when you provide cells with abundant glucose, they don't use their mitochondria. They simply rely on the less efficient but easier to use glycolysis that, that produces lactic acid. Now, as a result, 
of the way cells have been cultured for the last 80 years, they're almost always grown in five times physiological glucose. That is, our normal glucose is 5 millimolar, and cells are grown in 25 millimolar. And under these uh, glucose, and under these conditions, the cells don't use their mitochondria. They're completely glycolytic. They have no oxygen consumption. They have mitochondria, but they're not using them. So now the pharmacologist comes along and asks the question, is this drug toxic to cells? He puts the drug on the cells. The cells don't die. Therefore, the, the drug isn't toxic. It progresses into development. And mitochondrial toxins had been um, overlooked because of this simple accident of the way cell culture evolved. So when I go to meetings now, I stand up and say, stop growing your cells in so much glucose. You're, you're using, you're testing drugs and developing drugs in models of diabetes, not models of normal cell physiology. So to get around this, we do a simple, a simple trick. We replace the glucose in the media with another sugar called galactose. Galactose is not found uh, free in, in nature. It's only found in milk sugar or lactose in combination with glucose. When we take the glucose out and we add galactose, for galactose to get into glycolysis requires an investment of additional ATP so that as a result, using galactose in glycolysis, there's no ATP produced. So unless the cell starts using its mitochondria, it will die. So all we do is we swap out the glucose for galactose, and that forces the cells to use their mitochondria. And the next slide shows that now, when we're using galactose, the cells become susceptible to mitochondrial toxins. And I've shown four here, rotenone, antimycin, oligomycin, and SCCP. If you focus on the lower left, the oligomycin, you can see that the bottom, the filled circles, or I guess they all got filled uh, during the, the internet, but you can see that oligomycin, you can see the line drop. So concentrations of oligomycin that are sufficient to kill all the cells grown in galactose using their mitochondria. If you then look up at the line above, fully 80% of the cells grown in glucose are still alive. So this is now a simple and direct way to determine whether drugs have mitochondrial liabilities. And here at Pfizer, we now run drug toxicity tests in cells grown in glucose and galactose. And if we see toxicity in the galactose-grown cells, to us, that's, that's, that's prima facie. It's primary evidence of a mitochondrial liability. Well, in the last couple minutes, uh, so we can have some questions, I want to uh, propose the notion that there have been, for the last uh, several decades, really three models of idiosyncratic drug responses based upon some of that drug metabolism that I, uh, I told you about. In the next slide, I'm proposing that there's actually a fourth model. And the fourth model is based on mitochondrial dysfunction. In this case, as we've talked about, it's an off-target impairment that yields organ toxicity. And there can be all kinds of issues that go into it. But in the last slide, I'll show you a figure. This is from a review, from uh, Annual Review of Medicine, where Roger Ulrich did a, a very nice analysis of all those risk factors that are responsible for 
uh, idiosyncratic responses. We mentioned age. I mentioned physical activity. Well-trained athlete has a higher mitochondrial capacity than I do as a sedentary scientist. Inhibition of a key cellular function. You couldn't ask for a more important cellular function than a mitochondrial function. Concurrent exposures. We know that when dr uh, separate drugs are dosed simultaneously, that the mitochondrial liabilities can be worse. And so the point I make is that all the risk factors known for idiosyncratic toxicity have a direct mitochondrial component and counterpart. And I've indicated again in red, this is a bioenergetic threshold effect. As the bioenergetic capacity is eroded by the drug, at some point there won't be enough energy for the cells to remain alive. And that threshold varies from individual to individual based upon genetics, organ history, age, gender, that's the idiosyncratic part, the, the threshold, not the drug effect. And I conclude, conclude by uh, recapitulating some of the arguments that these drugs, many drugs have organ toxicity, we need to know about them. And the final quote in the last line is taken from a review um, that the first opportunity to prevent hepatotoxicity arises in the early stage of drug development. But it's, and that is when we can find mitochondrial toxicity early, early, early. And it's not just hepatotoxicity, it's nephrotoxicity, it's muscle toxicity, it's uh, central nervous system toxicity. So by identifying mitochondrial liabilities as well as other liabilities early in drug discovery, we can make drugs of the future much safer. And that's my mission. Thank you, okay. Dr. Sykin. Thank you. I want to open it up for questions. I, I did have a couple questions that came to me by email that I'll ask also, and I, I also just wanted to ask you to comment on, in concluding from your discussion, it appears that uh, these interactions are common, which raises a question to me about older drugs and their effects, um, as well as the effect of environmental and, and diet factors, not just the drugs. Say that again. I'm not sure I understood, Christy. So I guess two parts to that question. One is there are drugs that um, were tested a while ago before we really understood the, poten the potential for mitochondrial toxicity, and now they're used in a broader population or there are even off-label uses. For example, they might be used in children, even though that wasn't the original intent of that drug. Is there, I guess, just what's your thought on that and the discussion that we've just had? And then the second part of my question is, because we know that um, obviously there's a lot of evidence that there is a mitochondrial toxicity component for many drugs, what, how much buy-in do you put into environmental factors having a mitochondrial toxicity as well? Well, to answer your first question, I think um, clinicians and pharmacologists are increasingly aware of the fact that there could be mitochondrial liabilities. I went to my doctor. He prescribed simvastatin. And I said, I won't take it. And he looked at me and he said, why? I said, because it's a potent mitochondrial toxin. And he said, what? I said, I'll take a Torostatin, not so much because it's a Pfizer product, but because it has a lower mitochondrial liability. So I explained to him what I was talking about. I said on the papers. He called me up and he said, thank you. So I think the word is getting out. Um, much of the analysis that's been done has been retrospective. You're right. We're taking drugs on the market that have had problems and asked the question, are there mitochondrial problems with them? So we're starting to fill in some of the boxes and we're moving that question earlier and earlier in drug development. 
But until we do that, the best we can do is inform physicians that there is a liability, there is a risk, and if you know your patient has a mitochondrial disease, the risk goes up because they have lower mitochondrial capacity to begin with. So if you're going to use this drug, either monitor lactate more closely, think about the risk-benefit ratio, and this is also partly patient responsibility, as I, as I suggested with, uh, with the point to do with my doctor. And what's your thought on environmental toxins potentially contributing? Because there's some, there's some debate about that as well, whether that's a, a myth or um, could be a reality that contributes to mitochondrial disease, as many of, in particular, the adult patients know it. I think the evidence is, is compelling. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that mitochondrial disease is associated with the genetic component. Now, that having been said, there are environmental toxins that induce mitochondrial failure. Rotenone, for example, has been around for a long time as a pesticide, and it's clear that the incidence of Parkinson's-like disease, or I should back up, rotenone is a complex one inhibitor. If you inhibit complex one with rotenone, as well as other drugs, animals, including humans, develop a Parkinson's disease. It may not be exactly the same as Parkinson's disease, but phenotypically it's the same. So it's clear that environmental toxins like rotenone or environmental compounds like rotenone can have a mitochondrial effect, and that can translate into disease. Dr. Dykins, thank you. I'm going to unmute the line so that folks can ask questions. But I just also want to say that it makes this work that you're doing very important. It's important, I think, for the existing mito population, but it's also um, really paramount because we know that more and more patients are being diagnosed and coming to the surface with mitochondrial disorders. And one of our missions at MitoAction is to raise awareness about mitochondrial disease to the medical community as well as to the community at large. And so I appreciate what you're doing to raise awareness about the drug toxicity effect as well. Well, one of my missions is essentially the same thing, to raise the consciousness of the medical community. Now, thankfully, I think the understanding of mitochondrial disease has accelerated quite recently and is, and is, is really coming along quite, quite well. You're, you're doing a great job. So, um, I, I agree with you, and it's exciting. So I'm going to unmute the lines and allow folks to ask questions. When I do that, we'll just take turns. And if you'll just introduce yourself and tell us, again, where you're calling from and whether you're a patient or some other a parent or some other circumstance, and then ask the questions. And uh, I encourage you all to ask questions that are not telling us your, in, your personal case history, but that are something that would be useful for the group as a whole. So bear with me. I'm going to unmute our lines. Okay, so we can go ahead and take questions from the group now. So who would like to ask the first question? I would, Christy. Go ahead, Jean. Introduce yourself. It's Jean Shepard. I'm from British Columbia, Canada. I'm a grandmother and a mother, uh, mother of, uh, or sorry, I'm a, I'm a grandmother and I'm also a mother of a mitochondrial patient and a patient myself. And what I would like to ask you, first of all, is your permission to distribute this um, uh, PDF file to uh, pharmacists in our area. I think it's very valuable for information for them to have in their files. And secondly, is there um, uh, 
audio file available that we can distribute also to our uh, doctors and pharmacists that uh, will talk at their level rather than at patient level. That's my first uh, uh, comment, question, and thank you. And my question for you is in the third uh, page where you have mitochondrial impairment, you have some that are in blue, some of them are in black, and uh, avalproic acid and alpers in yellow. And I'm wondering what the significance of the colors are. Yes, the, the compounds in blue have already been examined for mitochondrial liabilities and, and have been shown to have them. The ones in black, in many cases, have not been examined yet. Um, the, the reason I, I highlighted yellow for me uh, because it's a prime case where um, patients with kids with Alpers um, given valproic acid have a very high incidence of hepatic failure. So it's, it's a well-documented uh, case where the mitochondrial liability and the drug are in conflict. And it's one that most physicians are aware of. In terms of making the PDF available, uh, most certainly, feel free. Um, you can also go to a website called PubMed. It's the National Library of Medicine. And if you Google my last, not Google, but if you, if you search my last name, there are a number of papers, scientific papers, that have been published just in the last year or two, uh, many of which are available free on the Internet. So you feel, feel free to di distribute the PDF, the, the file of the paper, directly to your pharmacologist or your physician, for that matter. Thank you, because it's been a, a real a real challenge as a mitochondrial patient, especially having been diagnosed in 1985, uh, to uh, uh, protect myself from mitochondrial damage. Yes, I understand, Jean. Thank you, Jean. I'm going to jump in with a, and just, Dr. Dykins, is it okay if we stay over for a few more minutes um, so that we can handle a few more questions? Yeah, I'd be happy I'd be happy to. Thank you. So I have a question that came in from email. Um, it says that uh, my patient had two metabolic crises, crises with tryptophan, triggering her into hypothermia. D-ribose must be phosphorylated by the cell before it can be used. And um, she was concerned. She goes on to talk about the pentase phosphate pathway. Her question is, will taking D-ribose correct the problem, and are there any other problems associated with that faulty pentose phosphate pathway? Do any, um, I'm gonna go ahead. I'm going I'm to have to think about that one. Um, I know a little bit about tryptophan metabolism, but, but it can go a number of different directions. So if you, if you forward that email to me, I'll cogitate and respond. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. So let's let's take another question from the group. Go ahead. Who would like to ask the next question? I am. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Okay. I have some questions. You mentioned antidepressants, and on the list, I think it has methadone, which I think is off the market at this point. Um, and all these people broke out because it's a mood stabilizer, but it's not quite the antidepressant. I was just wondering if there are other antidepressants. Um, and also, I wondered if if there are things. Um, obviously, a lot of folks have dysmotility issues, and if there are medications like Reglan, Domperidone, those kinds of things 
that are used quite frequently in treating um, mitochondrial disease that may, might also potentially um, lead to liabilities. The answer to your question is, I don't know. I do know about nifazidone, trazodone, and busperone. Uh, nifazidone does have a mitochondrial liability. Trazodone has a, has a mild one, and then busperone looks pretty good. Uh, in many cases, these drugs haven't been examined yet. The best thing to do is to, and this is what I do, quite honestly, I go to PubMed, and I type in the drug name and mitochondria and see if anyone's done any work on it. Thank you. Ellen, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. And I heard someone else starting to ask a question at the same time, so you can go ahead next. Okay, yeah, hi, this is Jeff from Ohio. Um, I stumbled upon this website just yesterday, so I'm, I'm rather new to this. Uh, I'm currently working with a musculoskeletal specialist at the OSU um, Research Hospital, and I'm awaiting test results on muscle biopsy. Uh, he, he suspects, after an ischemic forearm test, suspects uh, myoadenylate deaminase deficiency. Uh, would this be related to that? Uh, what? Cardio dysfunction, anyway. So, Jeff, uh, your question is if the myoadenylate deaminase is related to a, uh, a mitochondrial defect? Yes. Uh, the answer to your question is I don't know. Okay. Uh, is it, go ahead. And if I might ask the second part, I, uh, this all started with me about five years ago. I was quite healthy and very active, but after taking um, a large number of medicines, include uh, Requip, uh, Nexium, Ciproflaxin, which I was on for two years. Um, is it my understanding that you there could be some research to say that these drugs could have brought on a, a deficit for me? Yes, uh, some of the, some of the uh, fluoroquinolones, for example, you were taking ciprofloxin, okay. uh, trorofloxin, uh, do have a reactive oxygen species uh, potential. They redox cycle. Um, Pfizer had a drug late in phase three, trovofloxacin, um, and two days before the clinical trial was uh, abruptly dropped because of uh, toxicity, the CEO of Pfizer said this is going to be the best drug in the world. And then we found out very quickly that there was an oxidative component and that the, the trial was dropped. So again, I, 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 I would encourage you to go to PubMed if you have access to the internet or go to a library if you don't. Yes. And, and do the research. Just type in the drug name. Um, find out maybe what the generic name might be because some of the brand names are, aren't necessarily translated into the, the primary literature. And mitochondria. And see whether people are, have looked and, and found. In many cases, they will not, you'll find nothing. So the answer is, I don't know. But if you look at other drugs in the class, uh, you might be able to start guessing that there's a mitochondrial liability. Now, many, as I mentioned before, many antibiotics target mitochondrial either protein expression or replication. And this is, this is a, a function of the fact that you're essentially targeting the same uh, pathology. That is, a, a protein expression in the bacteria, uh, and you're hitting protein expression in the mitochondria. Many antibiotics, because of this, are limited in their exposure. Uh, for us, for example, uh, one of the recent antibiotics that Pfizer has, has produced is only allowed to be dosed for 28 days because we know that there's a mitochondrial liability and we know that some pathology can come 
if you dose longer than that. And if you don't mind me asking one more question, is there a hope to recover from this? Yes, uh, most definitely. In many of the antibiotic cases, all you've really done is inhibited the replication of the mitochondria. You take the drug away, the drug gets washed out over a period of time, sometimes a matter of hours, sometimes a matter of days, sometimes a matter of weeks, depending upon the drug and, and, and the pharmacokinetics, and the mitochondrial replication will start again. So, so, so the trick here, the risk-benefit ratio here, is to expose the patient to the drug long enough to kill the bacteria, but not so long that you erode mitochondrial capacity. And then as soon as you get rid of the bacteria, take the drug away and let the mitochondrial capacity recover. Okay. Okay. And uh, I, I, I also had problems with, uh, with ofloxacin, and I, I, I did the approach that uh, Dr. Geichen said, you know, type in the name of the drug or the generic name in PubMed, and uh, you do get results on it. So there has been some literature out for a while. It's just I think people had problems putting it all together. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, Dr. Dykins, is there a, yeah. oh, yeah. hi. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Dr. Dykins, is there an exhaustive list of drugs, um, or would you say that this slide that is in your, in your presentation that really describes a list of every drug that has a mitochondrial toxicity um, and that gets updated so that, or mitochondrial liability, that, and that gets updated so that it could be, um, made public, at least for our population? There is not. Um, that's a great idea, though. Um, typically what happens in, in academia in this, in this sort of realm is that as papers get published, if you do in PubMed look for reviews, you'll get sort of tables like I showed from uh, Urs Bush to these paper. Um, but there's not an exhaustive list. Uh, it, in, in some measure, that's because... Um, we're learning more and more every week about drugs and, and mitochondrial liability. So it, it would be hard to maintain, but it sounds like a great idea. It would be wonderful. Well, you can start with some of the you can start with some of the reviews um, cited by me and some of those papers in the slide, the one that, that I provided. Um, and again, in PubMed, if you do uh, uh, what. Well, well, just drug-induced mitochondrial dysfunction. Google that, or Google that, or PubMed that, and look at the most recent papers. Now, Yvonne, Will, and I just wrote a, a pretty comprehensive chapter for a textbook in applied pharmacology, and we tried to dig up as much as we could. But I'm sure we missed some papers on some of the drugs. Um, I don't know when that will be coming out, but I'll let Christy know when it when it hits the stands. That that would be great, Jim, and I'll certainly pass it along. I think. Um even just have sometimes the experience I've had in working with our, our population of patients and families with mitochondrial disease is that the majority of doctors don't know that there is a concern and you were lucky when your doctor went in to give you a statin that you are in the field that you're in and you knew to say I have concerns about that imagine if you were a patient with mitochondrial disease and you're just hoping that anything will make you feel better and then you potentially could be accepting a drug that your doctor unwillingly unwittingly gives you that he doesn't understand has a mitochondrial toxicity or component, and then you walk away making your condition worse than, than it was when you went in. And so I think um, our approach has been information is, is a first step. 
So um, I'd like let's follow up on that. I'd like to to follow up and work together on that to provide that information. Good. Well, you should know that my mission is to get the FDA to mandate mitochondrial assessments on all new drug applications. And publish them. Yes. Oh, yeah, if the, if the FDA does it, it's published. Uh, where would you find the FDA's published list of uh, uh, such drugs that would cause damage? Uh, it's, they, they haven't done it yet. So the only lists that are available are published by scientists like, like me and Urs Bushley and a bunch of other people. Okay. I think we have time for another question. Is there another question from our callers? I had a question, um, this is Ellen again, in terms of drugs receiving black box warnings, but in terms of drugs that may have a deleterious effect that have not received black box warnings, and, and you also mentioned anesthetic, and it's just less one, and I know that anesthetics are something that people have to be, you know, careful about. I was just wondering if you had other thoughts about anesthesia in particular. No, I think we're still starting there. Uh, my concerns about some of the anesthesias are that the effects are on membranes. Now, they, they change the fluidity of the membrane, and that can alter the, the, the function of the mitochondria. Um, the, the, good thing about, the good thing about anesthesia is, is that they're usually cleared pretty quickly. But if there is some damage, uh, it, it, it usually um, the, the stressor is removed pretty quickly. Now, see, the, I think the problem we're all facing is that we're just starting. I mean, this field is just starting to take off. Um, I just, as I said, I just came back from a meeting, and the pharmacologists from Glasgow Smith Pine, from, from Wyeth, from Novartis, came up after and said, we had no idea. And I said, well, now you do. Yeah, that, this is, and that's what I was, I'm also a former scientist, but uh, I was wondering if you've had to encounter a certain amount of, of uh, institutional, uh, I guess inertia is the word to use, resistance to, to taking a new look at things. Yes, that's always the case. It's particularly to medicine, which is by its nature conservative. You, you don't change something that seems to be working in medicine. Uh, the, the issue in pharmacology is that even though we can now tell the, the, the chemists or, or the team leaders who are developing a drug for whatever indication it is, that your drug has a mitochondrial liability, when it's tested in animals, that toxicity often doesn't show up. And, and, and in part, that's also the case in humans. Again, this is an idiosyncratic toxicity. Not all individuals will have a frank, uh, a frank adverse event. There may be an erosion of mitochondrial capacity, um, but maybe not uh, any sort of crisis. But it turns out that if in the animal model, if you knock down the mitochondrial form of the antioxidant superoxide dismutase by 50%, now you start seeing frank toxicity of drugs. Troglitazone is a good, uh, a good case in point. Troglitazone would never have reached the market if it induced hepatotoxicity in the animal models. It doesn't. It still doesn't to this day, unless you knock down the manganese SOD by 50%. And now we see frank toxicity. So by developing models that stack the cards in favor of finding toxicity, we're, I think, approaching more physiological and clinical reality. 
and again, the uh, again, my my field is analytical chemistry, and the, the the kind of questions you ask and evaluating whether the test is actually measuring what you should be measuring is a real important part of research. I agree. Dr. Dykins, do you yeah, have I, any I commend thoughts? you for your work. You know, this has been very interesting to me. I thank you very much for speaking with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Dykins, one um, potentially final question. We've had some discussions in our community as well about vaccines. Do you have any thoughts about vaccines as uh, um, a drug that would have potential mitochondrial toxicity? No, to be honest with you, Christian, I haven't, I haven't worked much in that area. But when I think about it, I, I, I don't see a lot of ways that they would be connected. Um, that, that, that's not to say that they're not. I, I just don't see them. And the, in relation to the swine flu concerns that are circulating, I've had some specific questions from patients about use of the drug Tamiflu. Our physicians here typically do use it with mitochondrial patients. Any concerns from your research? Well, you've hit my ignorance square in the eye. I don't know how Tamiflu works. Um, I could certainly find out because I'm sure it's known. It's um, an antiviral it, it, drug, though, not a vaccine. Right. It's an, it's an antiviral. And, and, the reason I, it, and, and there are antivirals, as we've talked about, that, that can impair mitochondrial replication. So I, I, I have to say I don't know how Tamiflu works. But if it, if it does target... Either the polymerase gamma for DNA replication, or reverse uh, some of the reverse polymerases, or protein expression of bacteria, then it could have a mitochondrial effect. So I would encourage I would encourage you to do the same research I'm going to do when I have it the phone. I'm going to Google Tamiflu uh, and see how it works. Well, uh, thank you for that, and I appreciate your honesty about it. I know we've we're asking you to speak off the cuff, and I really do appreciate the time you spend. Um, is there, are there any other thoughts that you have or closing comments before we wrap up? No, I, I don't, I, uh, although I will say that I understand that with mitochondrial diseases, the patient often has to be the strongest advocate. I would encourage you to find those physicians and medical centers that, that have some knowledge and speciality. Um, and there are, there are quite a few out there, and they're growing more and more. You've, you've certainly hit on something that's very true, and thank you, Dr. Vikins. And uh, you have been an advocate for our patient community today, and I'll speak on behalf of everyone when I tell you that we really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's, it's dinner time in your time zone where you are, so I appreciate you taking the time today to chat with us and to really boil it down into language that we could understand and to so graciously answer our questions as well. So. If you all will join me in thanking Dr. Dykins, thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Follow up with additional questions, and Jim, I look forward to communicating with you and uh, continuing the conversation in the future. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So for, for all of you who are still on the call, we're going to uh, – wrap it up. I'm going to stop the recording now and thank you all for joining us. So bear with me one second.